0: What I'm going to be talking about is, in the first instance, ideals of beauty quite generally in the Renaissance. And I'll be focusing on women, but in particular elite women, and I've signaled that the talk is about keeping up with the Tudors and Stuarts, and indeed the Tudor and Stuart Queens were deeply invested in their beauty. So we're thinking about... Elizabeth I, who's been very, very closely related to a cult of cosmetics, as well as Stuart Queen's consorts such as Anna of Denmark, Henrietta Maria, and Catherine of Braganza. So all of these queens would have been very well versed in the ideals of beauty I'll be talking about, but also the rituals of beauty. Now what's really special about this talk is that At least in my mind, for the first time, some of these recipes that I'll be talking about have actually been crafted up in the lab um, in the Department of Chemical Sciences. And my heartfelt thanks go out to Ruth Sink, who's a postdoc fellow. So please thank Ruth. So we, Ruth and I, have had a lot of fun um, with these concoctions over the last few weeks, and we've been intrigued by the properties and actually the apparent efficacy of some of these recipes. So I wanted to start out by just briefly talking about beauty and power. I'm sure you all have read, as I have, in magazines that apparently attractive women do better in the workplace and certainly this was the view in the renaissance as well and that is if you were powerful you were expected to be beautiful so beauty is associated with sovereignty but something different from today beauty was also closely associated with divinity and i have a little quote i'm going to read you here this was a speech made to elizabeth the It is her beauty only creates her queen. Tis that which adds a commanding power to every syllable. Beauty is the image of the creator and the rhetoric of heaven. This author is linking not just beauty and sovereignty, but beauty with divinity. And this takes me to my next point, which is that outer beauty physical attractiveness was seen to be an index of inner virtues. And there's a lovely author, 17th century English author, who called a woman's face her title page. It signals what's going on underneath. That is to say that if you were beautiful, you were thought to be inherently morally good. So very closely associated with goodness but also cleanliness and what they would have described very much as virtue. This is a a term that was very, very resonant in terms of beauty. Beauty is inextricably linked with virtue. So, beauty and power, beauty and virtue. Now, I want to quickly talk about beauty and women. It was really in the 16th century with the prevalence of lyrical poetry but also a number of treatises on beauty that actually female beauty came to the fore, that women were so closely associated specifically with physical beauty. So this move away from beauty being actually gender neutral to beauty being somehow specifically focused on women, that is actually a renaissance invention. So now I'd like to talk with you about what that beauty ideal was they came up with a list of physical attributes from head to toe. And this is known as a blason in French. And so they started from the head and went down. So they started with the hair, and the hair was the chief ornament of a woman's beauty. So the hair needed to be blonde or golden. It needed to be fine, long, and it needed to be wavy. Now, not many people have natural curls, so women needed to resort to things like curling irons and curling treatments. And in fact, if you read these recipe collections, you'll see they are littered with curling recipes. And from the hair, we moved down to the forehead. They wanted a broad forehead. And then when they got to the eyebrows, the eyebrows should be thin and they should be shaped like Cupid's bow. Then they got to the eyelashes, and the eyelashes should be very delicate and not black and not thick. So this is utterly antithetical with modern beauty where we put a lot of focus on fake eyelashes, thick mascara, Um, and in fact, (laughs) um, this one author of a Renaissance treatise Firenzeola, an Italian writer, said that if a woman made her eyelashes look really thick, she would frighten people. (laughs) Now, the ideal eye color was dark tan. It's actually brown. So brown is the ideal eye color. It's very interesting, in fact, because in the Middle Ages, the ideal eye color um, was blue or gray. But um, it's very interesting that that was seen to be mutable, that was seen to be changeable, but certainly in the renaissance, brown eyes. We moved down then to the nose, a narrow small nose, the ears firm close to the head and small, the lips small. Um, They would not have liked lip fillers. They thought that was grotesque. And then a chin. They liked a nice, small chin. They loved it if there was a dimple. And then going down into the neck, a really long neck, and then moving down for breasts. Again, this is quite at odds with modern-day beauty ideal. Um, Small, plump, like apples, they said sometimes. And then for the body shape, they call it not-too-fat, not-too-lean, um, but a good mix of plump and juicy. <laughs> so again, a body type that's also reasonably at odds with ours, which very much focuses on being slender. Another feature, very, very important, was your coloring. Your coloring needed to be not pale. You know, we have this view about Elizabeth that it was all about being super, super white, this kind of mask of whiteness, almost looks like full titanium dioxide that you would get from a really thick mineral um, sunscreen. That was not the ideal. The ideal was to have what was called fair skin, F-A-I-R. Fair skin um, connoted... um, lily-white skin with rosy flushes. If you can imagine the kind of iridescence of an opal, it has a luminosity and it has a sheen. So today, women who wear matte makeup, for example, that would be utterly at odds with what they would have aspired to. They were after the dewy, luminous finish. And again, the reason why was because this finish, this dewiness was associated not just with beauty, but with health and vitality. What was this rooted in? This was actually rooted in a classical um, idea, the Galenic model, which sees health as related in four elements or humors. And this is the sanguine humor, the phlegmatic humor, the choleric humor, and the melancholic. So there are these four elements or humors, that rule different organs in your body. And they are associated with different conditions and different times of your life. The best humoral element was the sanguine temperament. And this was associated with youth. It was associated with the liver. It was associated with blood and vitality. So if you had flushings of pink on your face, you were showing that you were vital. Literally, you were seeing the blood course to your cheeks. Um, If you think of veins that were painted on in Elizabethan and Jacobean portraits, for example, so beauty is a mirror of moral goodness. Beauty is a mirror of good health. Naturally, the stakes were particularly high for these queens, so they needed to be beautiful. But what, to what ends did they go to be beautiful? Now, today, we use this term cosmetics. And when people talk about Elizabeth I, they say, oh, Elizabeth I, um, she used so many cosmetics. It was really thickly laid on her skin. Even if you read scholarly literature, they talk about, oh, Elizabeth, she painted it all on really, really thick. And in fact, what scholars say about Elizabeth II is that when she came down with smallpox in 1562, that she was scarred and she had to resort to these thick lead-based paints to restore her beauty. Now, Elizabeth was incredibly vain, and she was one of those people who would um, try to elicit compliments when people would say, oh, you look so beautiful. She would say, oh, no, I look so ugly. So she was always fishing for a compliment. That said, there's actually no evidence that she wore cosmetics. There's no evidence. We have one contemporary source from a Jesuit priest. And if you know about Elizabeth, she's not in with the Catholics. She's not in with the Jesuits. So this is not a reliable source. And more to the point, too, no Jesuit would have been able to get very close to the queen to inspect her face. So, the point I'm making here is we, we shouldn't necessarily trust the portraits to give us the truth of the fact that Elizabeth did or didn't wear cosmetics. But what did these women do? So, today we have this idea, like if you go into Smith & Coey's, you have the makeup section, and then you have the skincare section. And today, we really espouse the importance of skincare. And that seemed to be okay. You can spend a lot of money on good skincare, And people will even say to you, oh, you have nice skin. And they're talking about this kind of luminosity and health that these Renaissance queens were talking about too. And to us today, you can still be natural and use really expensive masks, waters, cleansers, um, night creams. That's all fine. Um, But cosmetics, on the other hand, we have a bit of anxiety about them sometimes. And people will talk about women who wear makeup that's too thick. And in fact, even when you're buying foundation, they ask what consistency, what level of thickness you want. Now, in the Renaissance, the focus was very much on natural beauty. And so what we find consistently in these recipe books, these recipe collections are not recipes for a thick foundation or lipstick or rouge or um, eyebrow cream or coal to line the eyes. What you consistently find in these recipe books is beautifying treatments. So the focus is not on covering up It's on enhancing your natural beauty. So it's an act of enhancement. It's an act of even, and I think a lot of women can associate with this too, maintenance. So the idea is that you naturally, if you're an elite woman, of course you're beautiful, but everyone's humors get imbalanced sometimes. And your humors get imbalanced and you might get dry skin or you might get a rash. You might get freckles. You might be subject to, and this is a word I found in the recipe books, tannings. That was a bad, bad thing. Or sunburn. And so you needed to rebalance your humors and enhance your skin. So it's really, really important. What these elite women were focused on was not what we would call makeup. And in fact, women who painted their faces. That was very closely associated with um, the grotesque, with deformity, with prostitutes, and um, women who basically were insulting God by covering up what God gave them. It was seen to be very, very deceitful. So as you can imagine, there are a whole host of moralists, preachers, who were railing against these abuses of cosmetics. But what they're railing against is thick cosmetics, women trying to deform their faces rather than women trying to enhance their beauty naturally. So what kinds of things were they putting on their faces? Well, one thing that really astonished me in looking through these recipes is the prevalence of ingredients that we find in beauty products today. You do find oil of vipers, and sheep's fat, and, you know, boiled lizards. You find a lot of animal blood. So there are these kind of wacky things. But those are actually more unusual than ingredients we really commonly associate with beauty today. And in fact, I was reflecting um, this afternoon preparing for this talk. I was thinking, isn't it interesting a lot of these ingredients that these natural beauty brands are promoting is, oh, we discovered this. I'm like, well, I don't know that you discovered this. So I'll tell you some of the ingredients. Oils, lots of oils. So you can imagine almond oil, but also things like walnut oil, um, olive oil, a lot of eggs, um, egg whites and egg yolks. And my own instinct about eggs is I can imagine they're really effective as beauty ingredients. And I suspect they're not used more prevalently because of issues around um, preservative today with long-lasting beauty ingredients. What else? Aloe, a lot of flowers, violets, roses, um, lilies. They loved roses. And in fact, um, a lot of lettuces. And so I was thinking tonight, what have I not brought tonight that you all could see in the grocery store and think, you know what? I'm going to give this a go. You can take any kind of something from the lettuce family, like endive or even wild rocket, and you can boil it, cool it off, and apply it to your face. They used a nice little linen cloth, and this was seen to be beautifying. But this makes sense. Um, These are foodstuffs that are associated with cooling properties. And again, if you think about the humors, it was very important to... To cool the face and a lot of these issues that they had, like pimples, sunburning, tanning, it makes your face really hot. So you want to cool it down. So an endive water or wild rocket water or a rose water would have all been seen to be very effective. And in fact, obviously, we seem to think that they're very effective today, too. What are some of the other really um, good ingredients? Lots of lemon. And, in fact, lemon was seen to be, uh, and I quote, very cooling, which surprised me because I associate lemon with being an astringent. So you find lemon and vinegar, um, a lot of beans, white beans. And as you can imagine, some of these recipes might have two ingredients. But most of them have a lot of ingredients, and they become obviously really difficult to recreate if they have things like lead or mercury. So you find animal parts, you actually find human body parts. Occasionally in recipes you find something called mummy, and it is ground up bones. Um, You find lots and lots of herbs and other foodstuffs. Now, connections with modern day brands. ingredients I've left out that were really popular. One is grapes. And I don't know if you've heard of this natural, really cool beauty brand called Caudalie. And they come out of France and they say, oh, we're all about viticulture. Well, there are grapes all over these recipes. Grape waters, just like Caudalie makes. And I was reading that Kim Kardashian and Meghan Markle apparently wear a facial cleanser made with rice enzymes, well, you find rice water all over these beauty recipes too. And so in fact, this is another thing you can do at home. You can boil up some rice. There are lots of vitamins in rice and you can boil up the rice and use the leftover water from the rice as a little cleanser. You can just dip it in and use a little linen cloth. That's what they would have used. If you wanna be really historically accurate, you would have used a little linen cloth so when would they do this? What times of the day? Um, a lot of the recipes will specify to do things morning. Um, sometimes they'll say to do it several times a day. A lot of these treatments are left on overnight, and some of them are masks. So today, what we think of as an overnight mask, they used the same thing. So they might just apply the product overnight, like a pimple cream, and they're aware too. You know when you go to get a facial, they, they always... Um, remove the various layers with warm water because it opens your pores. They talk about that all through the recipes too, remove it with the warm water in the morning. So they're using these masks as well. So I guess one thing that certainly struck me in doing this project, and in fact, this project began um, as a result of a summer scholar that I had and then having the opportunity to collaborate with Ruth. And it's been so much fun to look at how you can combine art history. And, you know, I'm looking at these ideals of beauty, the cultural history of beauty, and then to combine it with what do we find in the lab? What does the lab tell us? Okay. So most of you should have a booklet here. This is the historical beauty book. So if you open up to the first recipe, it says to take away pimples. So it has, as you can see, wheat flour, honey, and vinegar. Honey, really, really um, long-standing associations. I should have mentioned it in terms of the really widespread ingredients. Honey is indeed found all over them. So not only um, anti-inflammatory, anti-microbial um, actions, but it's also very, very soothing. And so we tested this on our hands And we couldn't really imagine how it could dry a pimple, but it certainly made my hand a lot smoother than the control. It's very, very sticky. And so when you first try it, you're going to think, this is gross, I need to get it off immediately with a warm cloth. Um, But it actually sinks in over the day, so I've left it on over the day, and it has a, a really lovely consistency once it sinks in. I think another thing that I'll bring up that I think will be far, far more (laughs) palpable when you come up to touch and smell these products at the end of my talk is just how strong the smells are. And I just think they had a sensory world that was far, far richer than we do. And that's really struck me, this whole sense of the sterility of our world in terms of smells. I think they would have been regularly hit you know, with the onslaught, this kind of shock and awe of strong scents. And this is a nice embodiment of that. So this is to keep the hair clean and to preserve it. Again, an easily reproducible recipe for you all at home. You only need rosemary and water. You're meant to coat a sponge with this and apply it to your hair. The way they treated their hair was combing. Combing was the way you cleaned your hair. Like we might think, oh, that's revolting. But if you comb your hair very, very regularly and you're getting those natural oils down, it would have looked okay. And, but it probably would have had a pretty intense musky smell to it. I want us to take us back to dealing with queens. Access to queens, anyone in power was very, very carefully policed. So very few people would have had any kind of really close proximity to a queen. But if they did, if they got, I don't know, the honor of being able to kiss a queen's hand, for example, they might have gotten a whiff of something like the rosemary in her hair. She would have also worn things like a pomander. A pomander is like this little metal circle that's filled with various herbs and oils. So she would have glided around with a girdle, a belt, a metal belt, with a little pomander on it, which would have, as you can imagine, as it shook, released this really nice scent as she walked, and then she would also have had Her hair would have had maybe some rosemary, and she would have also worn perfume. Lots and lots of perfume recipes, and also recipes for putting in your linens um, to make your linens smell nice. So just to wrap up, what I hope to have shown you is that beauty was not skin deep for the the Tudors and the Stuarts. Beauty was really closely related to um, moral virtue, goodness, health, fertility, naturally the stakes were incredibly high for these women who needed to bear heirs and be taken seriously as sovereigns or the consort um, of the reigning king. What I hope to have shown you too, I think, is that a lot of these recipes that we find in these early modern collections of recipes. And these were printed, they were hugely popular. They were, you know, runaway successes. It was like the Jamie Oliver, you know, cookbook. And, and these recipes are often in collections, sitting alongside recipes for things like jams and preserves and how to stuff a swan pie. You know, they're all collected together. So I guess my final point really is the, the ongoing currency of these same ingredients. Um, in products today and what, what a wonderful opportunity too for art history and chemistry to meet um, to really make this talk happen so thank you